Hi, I'm Dr. Amy Robbins, and welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. I'm a clinical psychologist and medium, and here we explore life, death, consciousness, and what it all means. This could be the most excited I've been to welcome a guest to the show. I'm excited today to have Dr. Jeffrey Redinger on the show. He's a master's in divinity and an MD on the faculty of Harvard Medical School, the medical director of McLean Adult Psychiatric and Community Affairs at McLean Hospital, and the chief of behavioral medicine at Good Samaritan Medical Center. A licensed physician and board-certified psychiatrist, he also has a Master of Divinity from Princeton Theological Seminary. His research with remarkable individuals who who have recovered from illnesses considered incurable has been featured on Oprah Winfrey and Dr. Oz shows, among others. When it comes to spontaneous healing, skepticism abounds. Doctors are taught that miraculous recoveries are flukes, and as a result, they don't study those cases or take them into account when treating patients. Dr. Rediger, who has spent over 15 years studying spontaneous healing, pioneering the use of scientific tools to investigate recoveries from incurable illnesses. Dr. Rediger's research has taken him from America's top hospitals to healing centers around the world, and along the way, He's uncovered insights into why some people beat the odds. His new book, Cured, helps us understand the science behind spontaneous healing. Okay, so we we already talked for a little bit, but I have to tell my listeners that I am, I loved this book. It will be like a Bible for me moving forward. I am keeping it. I have it on my Kindle. I have about 10 pages of highlights from the book, so I am extremely excited I was saying before that the nerd in me who's like the grad school student highlighting everything can't wait to talk to you today so welcome thank you very happy to be here Hi, I've been much more purposeful this year about trying to curate content that goes together. And in February, and maybe bleeding into March a little bit, we're going to be talking about healing. So spontaneous healing, epigenetics, some African healing rituals, and just different ways to think about how you heal. So if you haven't subscribed to my podcast yet, please do so. You can just subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. Also, you can sign up for my newsletter and course, my program that's coming up. Both of those you can do on my website at dramyrobbins.com. And don't forget to follow me on social, on Instagram, also at Dr. Amy Robbins. I love hearing from you all, hearing how the podcast is opening you up, helping you shift and change your thoughts about things and your life. So check me out in any of those places. And here is today's podcast. So can you start with the basics? What is a spontaneous remission? So if you are on the science side, you call these cases of unexpected or improbable recovery, you call them spontaneous remission. And in med school, we were taught that these are flukes with no medical or scientific value. If you are on the spiritual or religious side, you call these miracles or spiritual healing. What I have come to realize is that all of these terms, spontaneous remission, miracles, spiritual healing, these are all black boxes that we've never unpacked with the tools of science to understand what really goes on in these events. 
Can you just share a few examples from your book about people who experience these? Like how, how sick are people typically when this happens? Uh, well, I had three strict criteria in my research. So I um, was very much a skeptic when all of this started. So the first criteria that I followed was uh, the person had to have a genuinely incurable illness, according to all that we currently understand. Number two, they had to have medically indisputable evidence for accurate diagnosis and clear evidence for recovery. And number three, there had to be no other good explanation for how they could have gotten better, whether through an experimental medication or anything else like that. So I start off talking uh, in Cured about a woman named Claire, for example, diagnosed with pan pancreatic adenocarcinoma by biopsy. So we know she had the right diagnosis. And then I chose her to start off the book because she's this wonderful lady. And like so many people I've learned so much from, she's kind of this universal human being or woman in the sense that she represented so many different facets of, I think, that are relevant to a lot of us. And so that's why I started off with her story. And it's just an amazing story about how she got better and how she expected to die. She cared about science and had always followed the recommendations of her doctor. But in her case, after reading a lot about pancreatic kind of carcinoma and how serious of an illness it is and how people really don't survive it, uh, she decided to not pursue chemo or radiation or surgery because she wanted to spend the last remaining months of her life with those she loved and wanted to focus on life rather than sitting in dark doctor's offices with people who were dying because she knew that only would, even if she followed all the recommendations, that was just going to give her a few more months to live. And she ended up living 10, was it 10 more years or 15 yeah, more years? Yeah, so she was diagnosed by biopsy in 2008 and then um, prepared to die. But then in 2013, she was um, had a, an abdominal CT for unrelated reasons and the cancer was gone. And so, you know, I tell a long trajectory of her story. One of the reasons why I included her story in the book was that she has a website where she talks about a lot of things that she did that I didn't have time to go into in the book. And so her website is livingwithpancreaticcancer.com and she explains more about the kinds of changes that she made at a deep level in her life. So one of the things you talk about in the book, you start with this question, can my identity determine my, my ability to heal? Yeah. What did you mean by that? That's a good question. That's a big topic. So one of the things that I observed in these people that I've been studying since 2003 is that many people at the deepest level ended up healing their identities. They ended up healing their beliefs about themselves and the nature of the universe that they live in. So what does it mean to heal your identity? It means that you eliminate false beliefs that cause you to question your value. It means that you focus on what is right and good about you. Um, one of the most common things that people have said to me over the years in the context of their illness is that it took an illness for them to wake up and realize that they needed to stop taking care of everyone else. They needed to stop responding to the perceived expectations of others and instead also focus on what creates life 
well-being and authenticity within them. It's shocking, actually, how many times when a person is diagnosed with an incurable illness or, say, cancer, that they actually, even though they'll, they'll be upset, they actually experience that as a relief sometimes. And, and, and this is a, a clue to what I think is going on here. A person will say, well, if I only have six months to live, then I'm going to do what I want to do with my life now. I'm not going to just take care of everyone else. Or a young man might say, well, if I only have a year to live, then I guess I don't have to go to law school because my dad wants me to. You know, and so this whole idea that a person has the right to live an authentic life based upon a deeper part of themselves, whether you call that the deeper self or the soul, to live out of that rather than do what others need them to do or respond to the perceived expectations of others. That shift is massive. And, and so I have this thing I do with patients because I've, I've learned so much from these people I've been studying. We often set up a selfish bitch project because uh, a person often feels like it would be selfish to do the things that they really want to do with their life. And it's not selfish. But in the early stages of, of making such deep changes, it can, it can seem that way. I love that, the selfish bitch project. Because, <laughs> I mean, just how we view selfishness or taking care of oneself right, in this exactly. culture. Right. <clears throat> and, you know, what's so amazing to me is, is that this is on so many levels, psychology, yeah. right? At its basic mm -hmm. core. Absolutely. And I know we're gonna get into, um, my next question is around what you attribute to the, the healing for people. Mm -hmm. But I think that our minds are so, so powerful. Yeah, yes. And we don't study that nearly enough. We are a very material culture and we are very comfortable with the things that we can see and touch. And, that's really the gift of Western culture to the rest of the world is that we have elucidated the physical laws of the universe. And so, you know, starting with Isaac Newton and the enlightenment. And so now we have smartphones, we have warm showers, we have furnaces for our homes, cars, airplanes, all these things. And these are all have been slowly lifting the world out of poverty, but there's this whole other dimension to who we are that we don't study nearly as much. And there's tremendous capacities that these people have revealed, that great athletes reveal, that great achievement has revealed in the world. And we just don't study that enough because the mind is very powerful. So what do you attribute these healings to? Well, in Kieran, I write about the four pillars of healing and well-being. Number one is nutrition, and we can talk about that as much as you would like. It's certainly, I think the Western diet is toxic to the human body, unfortunately. Um, the people that I've studied, uh, they did not use one particular kind of diet, but underneath all the superficial differences of the kinds of changes the people I've studied made, there were some very common elements to the dietary changes they made. They tended to eliminate processed foods, they tended to eliminate most sugar, not completely, but, you know, we, uh, 100 years ago, the average American ate four pounds of sugar a year. We now eat 154 pounds of sugar per year on average. Our bodies were not made to keep up with that. So most people that I studied did eliminate most sugar. Um, 
They eliminated most of the white enriched flowers and uh, which basically is sugar. The white enriched flowers are basically sugar. And so those, those three things go a long ways. Uh, they eliminated the processed foods, the sugars, and the re refined flours. Many of them eliminated meat or animal products, but not everybody. And I purposely told the story in fear of, of a person who went with a more uh, keto diet. Uh, but I do have some reservations about it because when you look at the research closely, animal products are highly inflammatory in general. And I know that vegetables can offset that inflammatory tendency. Um, but, you know, 88% of the people I studied did go vegetarian. And so it's just important to be aware of that, I think. In, in what about fish? Vegetarian or pescatarian? Uh, yeah, a, a number of people still would eat fish. Um, some did and some did not. I did not, in my research, um, look for a statistic on terms of how many people gave up fish and did not. Um, but certainly some people did continue eating fish. So nutrition being the first pillar. Yes. And then... The second pillar is healing the immune system. And that's very relevant during this time of the pandemic. What's really exciting is that medicine is in the early stages of a massive paradigm change. We have been accumulating research for the last 30 years that shows that a person doesn't really have diabetes or cancer or high blood pressure or autoimmune disease. What they really have at a deeper level of causation is chronic inflammation. And if you have chronic inflammation in your body, that means your immune system has gone awry. And so healing the immune system is a really big deal. The immune system is often goes awry because of the kind of diets we eat in the United States. Um, again, the processed foods, the sugars, the refined flours, uh, to some degree, the animal products. And, and then also the relationship that we have with stress creates chronic inflammation in the bodies. And so it turns out that if you heal that chronic inflammation, many of the major killers that people are suffering from, whether it's heart disease or diabetes or cancer or autoimmune illness, they are a lot more reversible than we realize when you heal the chronic inflammation in your body. And so how do we how do we manage our relationship with stress? Because obviously right now, right, we're in the middle of COVID. Right. Um, the media is feeding us fear and stress all the time, which, you know, hopefully people have heard this already, but then suppresses your immune system, right? Which makes you more susceptible to getting this disease. So it's like this horrible, vicious cycle that we can't seem to break because not everybody is is wanting the same outcome. Yes, it, it would seem. Yeah, that's right. Well, and healing stress is the third pillar of healing and well-being. And so, reversing stress takes specific steps. A lot of us live with a lot more fight or flight or freeze than is healthy for our bodies. And what's happening when that occurs is that stress hormones are secreted and bathing our immune system and the rest of our body. And, and what we know on the basis of the research is that when cortisol and norepinephrine 
are being secreted constantly, the immune cells become sluggish, they become inaccurate. Sometimes they start to attack the body itself instead of the pathogen that you want to eliminate. And so the immune system gets confused and that's what creates the chronic inflammation. So the way to get out of fight or flight, whether it's occurring when you're sitting in traffic or when you're stressed because of the isolation of the quarantine or the isolation with that um, is to learn how to relax. And certainly some people can follow the easy steps with that, learning how to relax one's muscles, relax one's mind, get out of the um, stressful thoughts. But also I talked and cured about activating the vagus nerve, which is the super highway of the parasympathetic. You can't be in, in fight or flight and also have your parasympathetic activated. The parasympathetic is the super highway of relaxation and love and connection in your body. And the vagus is activated when you make eye contact, for example, with somebody very directly, or when you smile, that's the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve helps us smile. It helps us make eye contact with people. It helps us communicate um, connection. And those kinds of things are what the immune system loves. And it's the, the parasympathetic, the vagus nerve is like a muscle. And so the more you activate it, the more benefit you get from it. And so I really uh, talk directly and cured a lot about the importance of activating our vagus nerves, learning how to strengthen that muscle in a way that we can authentically love the people that we experience in our lives, whether that's by Zoom or in person now, and to have a connection that is great for our emotions, but also great for our immune systems. Well, and what I loved what you said in the book about this is that the connections don't necessarily need to be with someone you love, per se. Right. It could be someone you're passing on the street. Right. It sort of reminds me of, is it, was it like Sesame Street or Mr. Rogers, like who, these are the people in your neighborhood. Right. Like there was a sense of, you know, you, you smiled and you knew your mailman's name and you, you know, yeah. I always make a point that the people at the meat counter at the grocery store know me, I know them. So when I see them, there's, there's a connection. It's not just the random person who's cutting my meat every week. And as a result of that, th there is a connection that happens. Yes. And so you talk about, I mean, I think that sometimes people make things way more difficult than they need to be. I mean, right. this is really simple, basic stuff. Yeah. When we pass someone on the street or we talk to somebody, even just for a few minutes, like you said, at the, um, at the butcher or the meat counter, make it a genuine connection and really enjoy that moment with them. And that makes your immune system hum. And, and it doesn't work quite as well over Zoom, right? Not quite as well over Zoom, but we also need a lot more research about all of this too. <laughs> so <laughs> That'll be the next, the grad students who are in school now, right? We'll be doing lots of research on the impacts of Zoom on your Fair vagus well. nerve. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so you talk about, and this is my, this is sort of my bread and butter, is facing death. Yes. And how really facing death. Oh, we, we skipped. Let me go back to the fourth pillar before we hop to this healing your identity. You yes. talk about. Right. Yes. That's a big one. And we've talked a little bit about that, but that's very related to facing death because it turns out that 
if we can die to an old version of ourselves in such a way that a new and truer, more authentic expression of who we really are can be born, then it, what I've come to realize is that sometimes we don't have to die physically. We all are going to die at some point. But if we are able, and, but, I, but I think at the core of the universe in some way, there's this thing, this dialectic about you have to die in order to live. You have to go down in order to go up. You have to be last in order to be first. What I've seen over and over with these people that I've studied is that they had to die to an old way of being. They had to die to an old way of being in the world that wasn't really able to honor the dignity of what they bring into the world in the most complete way. And that path of dying to who they thought they were so that this new version of who they are, this more authentic version of who they are can be born. That, that was a, a, big, a big story. And you don't have to necessarily be facing a physical death to do that, although it seems to sometimes for some people, and it sounds like this is what you found, that certainly expedited it. Yeah, it brings people. you up short. I mean, when you're told that you have six months to live or 12 months to live or whatever it is, that changes one's perspective and it brings what's important into stark reality. Whereas before it's easier to just be in denial about certain aspects of our lives or to be out of touch with some things. And do you think that you, you need to wait till that happens to do that? Like how can we get no. present with that possibility, which is very real, right? But we yeah. do have a level of denial around it. Oh yeah. Yeah, I, I think the more we can be proactive and really ask ourselves, are we living the life that we believe we were meant to live, that is here for us to live? Are we fully understanding the dignity and the value that we were created with? And what does it mean to live into that? What are the fears that have been holding me back? Uh, there's a lot of ways one can walk around this. Um, one of the people that I uh, studied but I did not write about and cured, for example, uh, she was diagnosed with breast cancer, and she had always been a very sweet, lovely lady. She had a husband, I think, was pretty rough, maybe even abusive in some ways. In the context of healing from her breast cancer, she became rather irreverent, uh, <laughs> would swear, she became a rather saucy individual in terms of she's going to tell you what she really thought. And I think that was a, an important part of her healing. Instead of being such a demure, sweet lady that kept all this stuff inside of her, she decided she's going to be who she really is. And she wasn't going to always censor things um, when she was around people. And I think that was probably a, a great change for her. Did you did you look at all at Anita Morjani's story? Yes, I have talked to her. Yeah, she has an incredible story. With I mean, she was like on. I mean, she was she was virtually in, dead. Yeah. She was in an intensive care unit, and they expected her to die within twenty four hours, if I recall correctly. I've not ever looked at the medical evidence for her case, but just hearing her story is very compelling and. It sounds like she would meet the research criteria for what I've studied, um, but I have not looked at the data, but it's an incredible story. Was there anybody else you looked at that was that close to death that then came back? 
Yes, uh, Dr. Patricia Kane, who I uh, do tell her story in Cure, she's a physician, and she was diagnosed by biopsy with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, which means basically that your lungs turn to cardboard, and you can't exchange oxygen any longer, so you die. And she had gotten to the point where she was sleeping 18 to 20 hours a day because her body just could not absorb oxygen well enough for her to really be awake. And so she was on oxygen. She uh, was really declining towards death. She had given up her medical practice, was on disability. And, and then she went through this process of healing her identity, like we've talked about, and she changed a lot of things in her life. She also saw um, Dr. Assam Naimi in Cleveland, who's a physician, but also a healer. And she's now back to work as a physician and so grateful for the illness in terms of how it healed her understanding of who she is, healed her identity, like we've been talking about, that she now does home visits with very ill patients who can't leave the home. And she says this is her way of expressing gratitude for her illness and the recovery. And she also does this thing on email called Doc's Daily Chuckle and thinks that humor is an important part of healing as well. Uh, but she's, like so many of the people I've studied, has been so grateful for the illness because it gave them such a different life as they learned what it meant to heal that. And you, just to let people know, you went to this doctor in Ohio and healer is one person, but you also went to Brazil. Mm-hmm. You observed healing rituals there. I know you were, you went to John of God, which there's been some controversy around, but can you tell us a little bit about what that was like and why you sought that out? Because that's really where like people believe that miracles are happening, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think it's really about the healer. Honestly, I think the healer at best just activates what's already within us. And I purposely tell stories and cure to people who did not see healers. Uh, but I also tell stories of people who did. Um, I started off in 2003 by visiting a number of healing centers in Brazil. And the place where John of God was, was one of those. Um, and, you know, healers are complicated individuals. And that's certainly true for John of God. You know, he's now in prison has been accused of sexual assault. And um, he also wildly, wildly exaggerated the number of healings that were going on there. Uh, Mm. I I said to him, I said, your book says that 90 to 95% of the people who come here are healed. And I said, I'm not seeing that at all. Um, Sounds like there's people who clearly there is evidence for healing. And there's many people who have not found a healing yet. And he said, oh, that's just for the popular press. But I mean, facts are facts. And so, so there are absolutely cases there that defy explanation and that medical evidence is absolutely clear uh, that the person had a healing with no uh, good explanation from the standpoint of Western medicine. Uh, but it wasn't near the level of 90 to 95%. Well, and I think to your point about a healer doesn't heal, 
I usually I like to think of it as like a guide, right? Like these yeah. people in this right. in our work, I think, you know, when people will say my patients will say you you helped me so much or you you made this happen. I'm like, "No, I didn't. I just guided you." Right. in a way that helped you to make this happen. I can't frankly do anything. And this gives a segue to your quote, which is before you heal someone, ask him if he is willing to give up the things that make him sick. Mm, right. And so, you know, I think that this is exactly what we're talking about is how willing is someone to let go of that? Yeah, that's a question for every one of us. And I think, you know, as a physician, I was trained to make a diagnosis and start a medication, but we don't even in traditional medicine even ask how people heal. And we don't study that by and large. That's just starting to change. That's such a big topic to give up the things that make us ill. And there's a lot of things that make us ill that we're just not even aware of until one starts down this journey. It's, and no. and again, I think a big part of the journey is the emotional yes, piece true. of the journey. You yeah. can't do, I don't think you can do the nutrition without everything. That's one part of it. But Right. It's absolutely true. Yeah. And one can even make all the nutritional changes, but the emotional piece is still important because if you make these emotional change, if you make these dietary changes from a place of fear, well, your body can't fully utilize the nutrition as much. And so that emotional component is really a big deal. Western medicine uh, has existed with this chasm between mind and body, between emotions and the physical uh, selves that we are for centuries. And what's great is that now the research is building very uh, clearly from both sides of that chasm between mind and body and showing that we are both and understanding how to take that to a new level in our lives is, is a big story. So can you talk, I, I, I hope I'm not confusing the two. The vagus nerve is different from the default mode network, right? Yes. Okay. Is. Okay. Yeah. Can you talk about the default mode network a little bit? Yes. Yeah. It's the, the default mode network is it involves several different brain structures like the prefrontal cortex and some deep parts of the limbic system, uh, the emotional system in our brain. And it's basically active when we are ruminating quietly to ourselves, kind of in an introspective mode. It's what we create the stories or the narrative of our lives with. And so um, we all grow up inheriting certain beliefs. Uh, we inherit beliefs from our parents, from kids on the playground, from teachers, from partners, from friends. And some of these beliefs are true and some of them are false. And for the most part, they're unexamined. Some of these beliefs are conscious and some beliefs are unconscious. Well, when things happen to us, whether it's something traumatic or unpleasant or a loss of some type, we all become introspective and spend time thinking. And when we are thinking to ourselves, we create a narrative about what we think that really was about. If someone goes through a traumatic episode in their lives or they have a history of abuse, ruminating over that and becoming introspective and creating a story around that 
that's what creates the default mode network, or that's what the default mode network is related to. And so it, it's the stories that we create of our lives that become the neurobiological wiring of who we are, of the stories we've told ourselves. And the more we tell ourselves a certain narrative about our value, about the worth that we bring into the world, that creates these neurobiological superhighways that become more and more greased with um, easily, these thoughts become easier and easier to apply. Well, the problem is if those thoughts about who you are, if they're not really the truth or the truest statement about who you are, then you end up with a real misunderstanding about who you are that's neurobi neurobiologically wired. And the question then becomes, how do you heal that narrative so that you see the truth and the dignity of who you are and you don't question that? And in doing so, you need to change that neurobiological wiring. And how do you do that? So, I mean, I know, I know what you and I probably, right. <laughs> how, how you and I probably think you do that. Yeah, and so you want to um, begin focusing on the truth of who you are and creating a neuro, a new neuro circuitry around that. And so you want to create a super highway neurobiologically where you experience your value, where you have a safe place in the world, where you see and feel the goodness and the value of who you are in a way that you don't have to question that or think you're not good enough. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. Some people change that wiring through psychotherapy. Some people do that through journaling. Some people do that through yoga. Some people do that through meditation. Some people do that through reading inspiring books. Some people do that through very loving, accepting relationships. It's because we become what we focus on. And so what you put in is what you become. And so the kinds of thoughts that we put into our minds and our bodies, that's eventually what we become. And if we spend a lot of time ruminating, thinking that we're not good enough, uh, or that there's something not good about who we are, then that that's what we begin to believe and become at, at some point. Right. So you create your truth. Yeah, we create our truth. So, okay, so let's talk a little bit. I just have a few more questions. Um, how you differentiate in this situation or in any, in any of these kind of healings or illnesses, what is someone's responsibility versus how to get them away from kind of blame? Like if someone gets sick with cancer, yeah. you know, and they, they hear this interview and they think, oh, it must all be my fault or I'm, I'm being yeah. blamed for this. Yeah. We're not responsible for the illnesses we get. These, we live in a culture where there's a lot of toxins in our food. There's a lot of things that we're not even aware of that, I mean, you know, I was, I'm a physician and I cannot tell you the misinformation that I received in medical school about nutrition even. I mean, we were given a lot of misinformation about it. So the things that happen to us, the illnesses that we get, we're not to blame for those. But what we can do is begin to educate ourselves and become more aware of the things that do create illness and the opportunities for healing that do exist. And we can wake up to a different way of doing things. And, you know, we can do better once we know more. And the truth is, 
most of us who are physicians and nurses and even nutritionists have a lot of misinformation that we've learned over the years and it's correcting that. And that, that just takes some re-education and some work. So hopefully it empowers people that they have more control, yeah. right? I think people feel like they're just all the time kind of ticking time bombs waiting to get right. Yes, that's absolutely COVID, cancer, yeah. heart disease, yeah. whatever it is. Right. And I and, and and an illness is such a heavy burden. The last thing I would ever want is for a person to feel like they have to do a particular kind of healing pathway. Um, whatever a person does, whether they decide to get chemotherapy or change their nutritional plan or yoga or meditation or to change their relationships a lot or whatever. Whatever they do, it needs to be what feels like an opportunity for them because what will feel like a burden to one person will feel like an opportunity to another person. And so it's just really important that a person chooses what's right for them. And, and, and that's different for different people. So here's my trick question, although it's probably not going to be a trick for you. But I said I had one question that did, that I when we were talking before, I said he had Dr. Redinger had ans- answered every question in the in the book as I was reading it, except this one. What about kids and spontaneous remission? That's a fabulous question. And I don't know the best answer to that. I think um, I have not done a lot of research on that. Um, you know, kids are so open, you know, their hearts are so open that they respond to changes in their lives, changes in relationships and things. Uh, they don't have as much baggage as some of us have when we are older and adults. So I know there's some amazing stories out there of healings, um, But that's a big topic, you know. I mean, what's the relationship of what happens for them spiritually? I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Well, your next book. Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time today. If people are interested, I highly recommend. This is going to come out after the holidays. We're recording it before, but this is a great book to sort of kick off your year. I think to think about how you want to think about your life, how you want to live your life. It's cured. It's called Cured. Where can people find it? Where can they find you? Uh, the book is available at Amazon and any bookstore. Uh, it is also my website is drjeffreyrediger.com. So. Well, and that this will all be in my show notes as well. Thank you so much for your time today, for your wisdom, for your insights, for the book, which in case people can't tell, I've really loved. Um, and, and just thank you. Thank you. Really nice to speak with you. You too. Like what you heard today and want to hear more? Wondering what comes next and what it all means? Head over to Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Also, if you could take a minute to rate and review my podcast, I would really appreciate it. Stay tuned as we continue to explore life, death, and the space between.